Is really, really great. They serve up music on a plate. Tim's luscious locks and shiny plate make the very best of mates. So welcome to the pod. Sam has the news. Hello, you sweet Poddletons. Welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. In this week's episode, we've got the fittest countertenor in New York City. My least favourite McDonald's. And the first known instance of Lithuanian whispers. We've mostly got good news for you this week, all sort of fluffy, lovely mm. pieces, with a sprinkling of Israeli misogyny in there just for good measure. But we begin in the digital sphere. The organisers of the International Chopin Piano Competition have announced that the 2020 instalment will not only be live-streamed, as it was in 2015, but VR live-streamed. Oh, that's when you put the goggles on, isn't it? Yep. A VR camera will be installed close to the pianist on the stage so that remote viewers will be able to experience performances from the pianist's perspective on the stage at the National Philharmonic Hall in Warsaw. For those of us that don't have VR goggles, special listener zones are going to be set up all over the world. Places where music lovers can come together to share the virtual reality experience and much else. What's that much else? What else are they going to be sharing? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, The news comes not long after this year's World Technology Conference in Armenia, which opened to the sound of AI-generated music. Is classical music becoming a vessel for competing techies to try out their latest gimmicks? Who knows? But Uh, you can find a link to the competition's official website in the link below. A charity concert in Tel Aviv, which was to feature the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, has been called off after the charity's director, Orthodox Rabbi Abraham Elimilich Ferrer, announced he could not endorse an event in which female singers were heard. In response to the outrage, he said, I draw my energy from Jewish law, I'm proud of my way of life, and I'm sticking to my life's mission, saving lives and loving the other. Loving the other, provided they're not a woman who Mm. wants to sing. The Israel Philharmonic subsequently said it would not perform at an event that excludes women, so good for them. Good for them. Fortunately, that's all our bad news for the week. Thank the Lord. Onwards. Forget Tom Watson's weight loss regime. If you're looking to get into shape, look no further than ePulse, a six-week workout routine championed by countertenor Anthony Roth Constanzo. After being informed he would have to appear naked in front of 30,000 people for the ENO's 2016 production of Agnaten, Constanzo went on Grinder and found all the headless torsos that had the best bodies and asked where they worked out. That's a quote. One such anonymous torso sent him to Mario Caspers, co-founder of ePulsive Fitness, which advocates electrical muscle stimulation, or EMS. Constanzo was impressed. In fact, he had such a good experience with the workout that he raised $100,000 to bring EMS technology back with him to the States. His new company, ePulse, started taking clients in 2017. It now has 500 users. And the countertenor says the business is already 
more than breaking even. Constanzo has this weekend reprised his role in Aknarton at the Metropolitan Opera in New York to rave reviews. Rave reviews of his hot bod or rave reviews of his singing? Both. Both. The New York Classical Review described it as easily one of the finest things to ever appear at the Met. <laughs> I just still don't know which one they're referring to. Speaking of electrical muscle stimulation, a concert at the Vienna Konzerthaus was interrupted on Thursday night after a cloakroom attendant reported a suspicious item stored in the cloakroom. An explosives expert called to the scene, carried out an x-ray of the bag in question and found the mysterious item to be a vibrator. Mm, perhaps the owner of the bag had thought they were going to a Steely Dan concert. We're thrilled to hear that our hometown of Salisbury will be host to a very special auction. Three 19th century Chinese robes and a circular peacock feather fan that belonged to British soprano Eva Turner, who sang the role of Turandot at the Covent Garden premiere in 1928, are up for sale at Woolly and Wallace. Woolly and Wallace. All our Salisbury listeners will no doubt be excited to get their hands on a piece of operatic history. We hear the robes are expected to sell at around the £200 mark, a very reasonable price indeed. Follow the link in the description if you want to hear Eva singing the role, presumably wearing these gowns. Our final news item today involves our very favourite conductor. Yannick! Yannick! Shout out to our listeners in Philadelphia. If among you there are any budding string players, the fabulous music director of the Met Opera invites you to perform alongside members of the Philadelphia Orchestra and Orchestra Metropolitaine de Montreal in a community play-in on the 23rd of November, led by the man himself. This week, we were having a drink with friend of the pod and foreign office fellow Tom Jordan. He asked, how do we choose the pieces for analysis? I said, basically, we choose a piece we've had a strong reaction to, either positive or negative, and then try and work out why. I sort of go into detective mode. Analysis. Incidentally, I have written a script for a musicologist-based murder mystery called Behind Bars, but the piece that has made me stop and start investigating most recently was Kerry Andrews' piece Onata Looks. Written for unaccompanied choir, it's a three- to four-minute long piece suitable for performance in concerts or church. Written for the Ebor Singers in 2005... It's the opposite of the Servian Wall in Rome. What's the Servian Wall, and how can a piece of music be opposite to a wall? Well, the Servian Wall is a 10-metre-high ancient battlement, originally built around the 4th century BC to defend the city of Rome. It has been allowed, unlike most of Rome, to fall into a state of disrepair, and people have been allowed to build whatever they want in and around it, including, in the main railway station, a section that incongruously makes up part of a McDonald's dining counter. That gross use of a Roman relic is an example of how not to interact with heritage and tradition. Onata Lux is the opposite of this wall. I see. We're going to listen to the very opening and we'll hear a traditional element and how Andrew has reinvented it for today. Sounds beautiful. 
Thanks to the London Oriana Choir for that clip. It does indeed sound beautiful. We start with a chant-like intonation, a single voice outlining a simple melodic phrase that places us in the key and mood of the piece to come. These were absolutely ten a penny in Renaissance and Baroque music. My personal favourite is at the beginning of the Monteverdi Vespers. I put a link in the description to a video of Alex Ashworth absolutely slaying one for John Elliot Gardner. That clip is a real horn dog. I'd definitely recommend checking it out. The intonation is a traditional element. However, chant is traditionally sung by lower voices, tenors, basses, and baritones like Mr. Ashworth there. The female voice is rarely heard in chant, perhaps as a hangover from chant being sung by Catholic priests who remain famously male. So there's one updated tweak, a change of voice part. But then Kerry Andrew goes further. Rather than just leaving that intonation as the scene-setting opening statement, it becomes the backdrop for the entire rest of the piece. Sopranos sing it over and over, at their own time and tempi, creating a collage of beautiful, aleatoric singing. Aleatoric? Semi-scripted, partially improvised. The composer has created the opportunity for performers to shape the piece in the moment. Chanting has become a cutting-edge contemporary technique a thousand years into its existence. Following that, the altos, tenors and basses of the choir sing the rest of the text, set basically syllabically, to some juicy chords, the first of which is made up of all those chant notes. All of those notes played at once, followed by a chord which has none of the chant notes in. This one. The new chord illuminates the chant, shedding new tonal light and representing the text as a result. This continues throughout the piece, the altos, tenors and basses, moving the harmonic point of focus so that we hear the chant in a new setting. Have a listen. At the very end of the piece, tradition and the present become explicit topics for discussion. The ATB parts take over the aleatoric element, shifting between two given notes and vowel sounds at will. It sounds like the wind to me. I quite like going... Anyway, that wind blows a change into the chant which shifts from being sung in Latin to English. O nata lux de lumine becomes O light, born of light. This makes it a macaronic text, meaning it includes more than one language, one of which is Latin. Nothing to do with the French Prime Minister, then? No. Nor the delicious pasta? Alas, not. Kerry Andrew has met the choral church tradition where it is, acknowledged the elements of it that are ripe for reinvention, and using her fresh perspective and shed new light on what those pre-existing elements, like chant, can be. And hers is a fresh perspective, sure in part because she is an interesting contemporary composer, but it's also worth remembering how few women have historically been involved in church music. Salisbury Cathedral became the first cathedral choir in the country to admit choristers, but that was in the 90s, and they were the first 700 years or so into that building's history. 
Shout out to my mum here, who wanted to play football and sing in the church choir, neither of which she was allowed to do because she was a girl. Composers like Kerry Andrew are part of that change happening to church music, and I think it's enormously magnanimous of figures like her to meet the church tradition where it is, compose using elements of the music that they would have been excluded from a generation or two before, and reinvent that in a sympathetic way, rather than building a gross Servian wall McDonald's or smashing up the place to destroy that oppressive history. Onata Lux sheds new light on the artefact it interacts with, church music and shows how it can be relevant to the present day. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. I'm here at the National Theatre on a rainy Thursday lunchtime with Daisy Evans, who is an opera and theatre director and the artistic director of Silent Opera. Now, can you, Daisy, briefly outline what it is about a silent opera show that is different from your standard operatic production, first of all? That's the money question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Silent Opera, we're, a, we're a, an immersive theatre company and opera company that are looking to change the way that people experience opera and see opera. So sometimes you'll be inside the opera and you wear headphones, which give you the orchestra, because that's the problem when you do an, an immersive opera, mm. is you've got hundreds of musicians to move around with if you're going to do something with a full score. So I wanted to do proper operas with the proper orchestration, so I put it all on headphones so people could walk around. Oh, and what's the last show that you worked on? It was last summer, wasn't it? Um, yes, so we're, our most recent production was The Cunning Little Vixen, or as we call it, Vixen, in our version. And uh, we split that down into sort of three types of music, if you will. So we always have a pre-recorded backing track and the performers perform live with uh, head mics. So everything's mixed for the headphones. But we had some pre-recorded orchestra for all the high romance of the, of the Vixen. We then also had electronics for all of the scene-setting moments or the recits, the more kind of day-to-day, less emotional stuff. And then we also had a small band of live sort of buskers who came along and did all the the very Janoczekian kind of folkloric stuff that's in Vixen. So that was all live. And it created this really amazing blend of kind of... It really made it sound really urban, so we, we used the music as a way to paint the setting as much as yeah. you know you were in a, in a set that was on the streets of London and inside a kind of council house. And, yeah. and that's been really successful, so we've taken that kind of like around the world, from China to Helsinki to yeah. Italy. Yeah. <laughs> so in London, am I right, it was the vaults that you yes, performed that Yes, it was in, in London, the vaults. Which is underneath Waterloo, for those yes. who don't know, it's a brilliant little... It's great. It's an old station, actually, that used to take dead bodies out of the centre of London. Ooh, it, was called, it was called the Necropolis Railway. That's yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah. I know. It's really, it's kind of, you know, and there's an old kind of signal box in there and stuff. And it's, so it's a very atmospheric venue. Um, and we set Vixen, those people that know the original Janoszek, it's all, it's all animals. And it's all about a, a man who kind of has a, has a relationship with a fox. And it, you, know, you don't really know what that is. Yeah, it sort of hints at bestiality, but not... Yeah, yeah interesting. and it's all about how he's sort of in love with the idea of being young again. It's very nostalgic. Yeah. It's about the circle of life. It's so, a yeah. truly wonderful, wonderful opera. But for us to do it, I, you know, 
sort of thought, well, no one's going to believe that someone's a fox if they're in costume, because that's the great thing about silent opera is we, because you're literally next to it, you've got to believe it. You can't do any of these kind of high concepts. Or at least to date, we haven't done any sort of high... It's very real, it's very visceral, it's very vibrant, full of life. So we set it real. So she was, in fact, a young girl runaway with a vixen tattoo on her neck, hence Mm. why she'd been known as vixen. And someone uh, sort of, he sort of fosters her. He's a kind of guy that has a lot of foster children at home. And he tries to take her in, but uh, it doesn't go well because she doesn't get on with his other other Mm. foster kids and they bully her. And so she just thinks like, well, screw this, I'm going to leave and just live on the streets. And I think, you know, it was was an interesting project because I think in in modern culture, unfortunately, you're just, we're seeing a lot more of that in London. Mm. And the fact that people were kind of going to see a nice opera, I mean, not nice, but, you know, kind of experience this opera and see how people live on the streets and see the kind of extraordinary things that they're subjected to, and then to leave hand in the headphones and see people like that actually living on the street, to me, it it was really important to to sort of make that point. So while we're on that, you talk about how that's relevant now more than ever, and that's interesting because, well, certainly I found that discussion around opera has increasingly become focused on a widening gap between traditional repertoire Mm. and an evolving post-Me Too, I suppose, audience. And if we look at the top five most performed operas in the world last season, I think it was the Traviata, the Magic Flute, La Boheme, Carmen and the Barbara of Seville. (laughs) And all of them were premiered before 1896. Mm. And most in their original versions contain either some variation of gender violence or some kind of racist caricaturing or both. And we, you know, we see women generally falling for the worst kind of bloke you've got. You know, we see women dying horribly, we see mm. Ida, Tosca throws herself off the parapet, Madame Butterfly stabs herself. Yeah, Ida's buried alive, I think. Yeah, yeah, Ida's Ooh. buried alive with her. I'm sure you know, but in Australia earlier this year, the summer, there were, I think, 190 composers and directors and musicians, they signed this call to action to remove sexism and gender violence from opera productions. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but silent opera productions have generally been based on works which are rooted in this operatic Mm. tradition. So when you're choosing these operas and and adapting them, are you considering these potential sticking points and, and... what do you do to adapt them and how do you go about that process? Yeah. What's your thought process? Where do I start on this one? It's a big, big topic. It's a huge right? way. I <laughs> no, it's fine. So firstly, I think that I don't agree that you should remove this, yeah. you know, violent because I think then you are sort of destroying what the core of the piece. I think, but I think there is a perspective. I was reading a, a Philip Pullman article the other day, and he talks about storytelling about being where you place the lens, mm. or where you place the camera. So it's, it's it's about where we, and as a director, I always think this, whether I'm directing silent opera or normally, as it were. For example, um, if you look at Traviata, actually. Violetta's a very, very strong character up until exactly kind of the middle point of the opera. You know, she's the one that's in control of the storyline. It's her party in Paris. It's her decision to go away with Alfredo, which actually makes her quite, you know, strong. The fact that she's then knocked off her perch by a kind of horrible older man Mm. is interesting. But I think, and when I directed that, 
a, a production of Traviata, I, I use that as a thing to show how women are often treated. You yeah. know, it's, it's about how you use it. The fact that Carmen is that horribly stabbed to death, you can do that showing that she's a, a real victim of like a dysfunctional society yeah. that has a kind of a madman running around in it. Yeah. I don't think it needs to be re- removed because I think you need to show, because actually a lot of these situations are very real still. We're in a society that that has a sort of primal, it's built into us, uh, and it's not just conditioning. I think it sort of goes deeper that women occupy a certain role. And I think even people with the best intentions, sometimes you see something that's actually quite sexist and they might not even be realising yeah. that it is. Again, like take Labouem. Mimi and Musetta never have a scene together. They're never, they never start a scene. They're never on their own. They are complete male projections. Mm. Having said that, there is a way of directing that that you can highlight that or use it or... Um, shift the lens. Shift the lens, yeah. yeah. Um, again, I'm, I'm directing a production of it at the, at the moment and I'm doing it all as if Rodolfo is... It's 30 years later and Rodolfo is still not over the tragic death of Mimi and he's in a grief counselling session and, it, and the whole thing is a remembrance. And if you look at it that way, then he, she literally is a version of Mimi yeah. that has come from him and Musetta is like the fun bubbly friend that, you know, my mate kind of got off with and it was all, you know... And, and seen through that lens, you start to you know, try and in some way do justice to these female characters. But, again, you know, the second part of this is that I am a woman. So I am directing from a certain perspective already. And I think that's a big problem. And a lot of these new productions of these tragedies that have women at the centre of them are being directed by men. Still men. I'm I'm not going to stand on a parapet and say, oh, well, Traviata now must only ever be directed by women. I completely agree that, you know, imagination takes a whole... And, you know, again, like you said earlier, I directed Don Giovanni and actually I stripped it of its women and we just had Don Giovanni and Leporello on stage. Not to say the women didn't feature, we pre-recorded a lot of um, Donna Anna and a lot of Donna Elvira, but it was about, I wanted to look at how Giovanni treated women and to show the audience, like, put the lens really strongly on that. So, in a way, having the women there... I mean, Don Giovanni, we could talk for hours about what it means. <laughs> it's a very problematic piece, I think, for directors because there are so many different characters in it that can all be interpreted very differently, which I think makes it, it, makes it great, makes it so attractive. But I think we need to... St- Start thinking of these huge, great, you know, monsters of the operatic canon. Think about them differently and stop being so protective of what we think that they should be. You know, yeah. everyone knows La Boheme and they know it's set at Christmas and Mimi dies of tuberculosis and it's kind of voyeuristic and it's a bit, I think, done traditionally is problematic. Yeah. So I see that version of needing to cut out the gendered violence, needing to cut out the kind of racism that are in these things, of course, done traditionally, done in the original way, yes. I feel in opera there is not enough courage to do, on a big scale, what I do with silent opera. So what I do is I retranslate stuff, but just making a few tweaks to help us, you know, change the lens and change the language a little bit. It's interesting, you say that you need to have the courage to do that, and clearly that's not necessarily something that the bigger opera companies have no, not. yet. And no. I've looked through programmes for this season coming and a lot of the big opera companies and it's still 
vastly majority men that yeah. are in charge of that are in the creative yeah. teams. Yeah. As a female director, is there a feeling that things have moved slightly, are going to move, or is it still too slow? Do you think? Uh, it's a hard one because, well, I mean, ENO have just announced uh, Annalise Miskimen is going to take over, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. I think she, you know, that's that's great because we were in a situation where only one of our national opera companies was run by a woman, which is Christian Chibnall at Opera North. Um, you look at boards and they're often quite heavily, you know, chairmen and CEOs, they're you're quite, quite heavily male-dominated. I think it is going too slow, really. It's, it's just such a, it's such a difficult one to answer because yeah. a lot of women don't even you know there is this phenomenon and I, I definitely felt like this when I was younger and I don't know where it comes from but there is something in, in women that I've spoken to that they they don't just go for it for example so my situation was I always knew I wanted to direct okay and I always knew that I wanted to be the person kind of in charge of doing stuff but there was something in me that I thought oh well I couldn't do that and it was only until I got to university and I was in a really quite bad production of something and I just thought, no, I think I can do this. And talking to friends, they were like, yeah, you should go for it. I think there is quite a male thing in, in just sitting in an interview room, for example, and going, yeah, I can do that, and totally like bluffing it. I think sometimes it's quite a female thing to you know, step back and be a little bit more cautious about things and not just kind of go... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being slightly hesitant saying this because I know that that's a vast generalisation. Yeah. But I just... In people I've spoken to, I've taken part in quite a lot of, of women's groups, specifically women and opera groups, and every everyone agreed that you have to take, you have to sort of masculinise your language, which is something that I learned um, in a on a course with Katie Mitchell, who was talking about sitting as as directors, you pitch a lot. So sitting in a room with an artistic director, and I would always be, oh well, it would be like I'd love to direct Peter Grimes, or I would love. You know, it would be so great if I could direct, I don't know, Traviata here. Whereas um, what you should do is go in and say, you need to employ me because I need to make work. Mm. I am a great director and you need to employ me before I'm, before I'm gone. Mm. And it's a very scary thing being a freelance individual, yeah. walking into a big house and going, you need, you know, basically saying you need to buy what I'm selling. Yeah. Whereas I had a meeting where I said that to an artistic director... <laughs> And I got the job. Really? And it was Gosh. really, I was like, it was as clear as that. Obviously, there's other things that come with that, as with everything. But I think in the arts, we have to show that we have confidence in ourselves and what we make. Philip Pullman said this in this great, he's, he's released this amazing book called Demon Voices, which is a collection of essays on, on writing and storytelling. And he talks a lot about um, we, should, we as artists should not be ashamed of... of being mercenary because if it's what we do and what we create we have to get paid properly for it and we have to get people to take us seriously yeah. so you, there is an element of kind of needing to to be quite hardened and be quite direct yeah. but is that the same as masculinizing something is that not just being assertive or is, I, I think, mean I don't know I don't know some yeah. would attribute it to, to I mean Katie certainly yeah. would, would say it's so masculinization she, yeah so she described it but I think though in empowering this is the whole point of empowering women and you know giving them more opportunity giving them more strength to believe in themselves and go out yeah. there and do it whereas you can't deny that society has yeah. naturally empowered men above women Absolutely. and if by going and watching an opera in its traditional production, exactly. you're just compounding that point of view. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I, I will not name names, but I went to see a show a couple of weeks ago that was Mozart Seraglio, and it was done in its original form, and, it, and it's, it's about, you know, a harem and a love triangle that's set within... And set traditionally, it's just horrible. Mm. And the fact that you see women in cages and men running around free outside it, and Costanza is singing a very beautiful aria, and they were, like, doing her makeup and doing her nails and stuff. I just can't watch that. It's Did just, you stay for the whole thing? No, I didn't. Did I couldn't. I had. Wow, I just. Yeah. I couldn't. And you know, you come out in the interval, and everyone's going, "Oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it marvelous? Is she beautiful." That's what's the. That's what's really yeah. wrong. Again, I think there's probably a way of doing Sorelia that you could highlight those problems and show that maybe somewhere in the world, you know, because somewhere in the world, that's still a thing. You know, that to me is what you should do with problematic pieces. Yeah. Unfortunately, there is a, a thing in opera that people are very, very protective of the kind of jewel house of canonic works, you know, anything by Mozart, anything by, you know, don't touch it, don't break it, because yeah. it's very precious to us. And yeah. Well, on the subject of um, misogyny, <laughs> you're doing an adaption right now of Donald Trump in <laughs> Aberdeen, yes. is it? Trump in Aberdeen, yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's very, very silly. But <laughs> <laughs> What's this about it? So it's a, it's a companion piece, if you will, to Nixon in China. So the, the premise is that Trump, who is Ronald Trump, we've sort of slightly oh, changed oh, everyone's Excuse name. Me. So he's, you know, he's nothing to do with the American president. <laughs> so he comes and he's a, he's a kind of, you know, well, he is what he is. I mean, he wants to buy all of Aberdeen right. and turn it into a luxury resort. And he uh, is opposed by a sort of Greta Thunberg <laughs> sort of super so it's a clash of the super left and the super right and that's with Scottish Opera that is with Scottish Opera yeah Uh, scored by the wonderful Sam Bordoni when when will that be surfacing this will be surfacing in February next year oh that's very exciting (laughs) yeah and what else have you got coming up in terms of silent opera have you got anything in the pipeline for that yes we do so really exciting our next show is going to be a kind of family show there's going to be a new adaptation of Hansel and Gretel the Humperdinck the Humperdinck yeah the classic well we shall look forward to both of those yes. projects that's very exciting Daisy thank you very much and hopefully that's given a bit more of a, a grounding in where that discussion is at the moment and how mm. things have progressed but clearly still need to progress yes definitely help hello This library is enormous! Tim, you've left the reverb on again. Oh, sorry. I was distracted looking through the amazing selection of scores available on the Encoder app. Ooh, what's that? It's a music library app you can download right now. Start with a one-week free trial, then subscribe to access the complete sales and hire catalogues of 100 publishers, including Boozy and Hawks, Baron Reiter, Chester and Novello. I must download it from my app store. How do you spell encoder? N-K-O-D-A 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 Doctors 
1999 subscription feeds your classical addiction. One week free trial gets you going. Annotate on Shay or Cohen. subscription feeds your classical addiction. some creamy Deutsche Grammophone sound, Timber. Oh boy, that was the upcoming disc of works by Lithuanian composer Raminta Shirkshnitje, born in 1975. She trained at the Lithuanian Academy of Music and has studied under people like Louis Andreessen, the Dutch composer. This disc is out on the 15th of November. It consists of three works, two performed by the Baltic Chamber Orchestra under the chief conductor of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, Mirga Gratznitja who is fantastic. She's so good. And those two works are called Midsummer Song and De Profundis, written in 2009 and 1998, respectively. Hmm. And the disc's centrepiece is the Songs of Sunset and Dawn, which is what she describes as a cantata oratorio for soloists, choir and orchestra. And that is the Lithuanian National Symphony Orchestra with the Jauna Musica Choir under Giedre Slekje. So it's a double bill? It's a double bill, yeah. Two orchestras, one disc. As I said earlier, that final piece, it's the headline. And it sets words by Bengali poet and Nobel Prize winner Rabindrath Tagore, mm. translated into Lithuanian. Wow. Which is cool. I think it might have, because it was translated originally into English, and then it might have been translated from the English into a Lithuanian, possibly. I think that's that's how I understood it anyway. It's a bit of Chinese whispers, but well, Lithuanian whispers, as it were. And the texts come from two collections written in 1916 called Fruit Gathering and Stray Birds, which generally center around the poet's love of nature and simplicity. And Sekshnitya has arranged the poems into a trio of fragrant nocturnal movements that progress from dusk to dawn. Mm-hmm. Now, stylistically, she's responded to the text in a fairly conventional way, I would say. You could probably describe the music as post-romantic, I would say, with flecks of minimalism, jazz, and avant-garde. There are lots of nostalgic, bird-like melodies and opulent, glistening orchestrations that clearly take inspiration from late Romantic composers like Richard Strauss, Schrecker, and Korngold. I hear a lot of yeah. them. Uh, Strauss's Daphne in particular comes to mind with that magical final scene when Daphne transforms into a tree. It's, oh, it's just so beautiful. And yeah, I got a very strong sense of that. There are also some 21st century sprinkles and new music touches that set the work apart. There are drones from which each movement emerges and returns to and the splashes of metal percussion, glissandos, microtones. Nothing that can be considered jarring or challenging, though. This isn't plinky-plunk. Right. It's more um, wifty-waft? Slightly. Now, I'm actually torn here because, I, as you'll know, I'm, I'm a real slush puppy. But you are. I, I, I've mostly been thrilled to bask 
in this sort of luscious sound world, which has so perfectly been conjured by an absolutely sensational Lithuanian National Symphony Orchestra and the four excellent Lithuanian soloists, whose name I won't butcher now, but which you can read in the description below. (laughs) This is a sound world where I feel entirely at home. And I've actually listened to this disc now four times, which I think says quite a lot. I really, really like this music. But having said that, a very small part of me is a little bit sad that I haven't been totally challenged. Mm. Uh, Serkshnitsje is extremely proficient and has completely mastered this particular corner of classical music. But the fact that I'm hearing such strong, specific influences suggests to me that perhaps she risks being seen in posterity as perhaps more of a reactionary than a revolutionary. Now, maybe that's not a bad thing. I don't know if being a revolutionary is a prerequisite for being a great composer. Probably isn't. But if you look at those contemporary composers who seem likely to be listed amongst the Beethovens and the Berlioz's and the Strauss's and the Stravinsky's in the next hundred years, I'm thinking of John Adams, Steve Reich, Anna Meredith, Caroline Shaw, potentially. Mm. The one thing that they've got in common is a revolutionary element that they've managed to successfully incorporate into the mainstream, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair description. And there are, there are hints of a disruptive voice coming through, mostly on the first track on the disc, Midsummer Song, which is also the most recent written. Now, maybe that's telling of her developing her style and, yeah. become, and finding that voice it's a fascinating little piece with a really fresh take on the passing of the longest day of the year Mm. yeah and as i say yeah maybe this is a sign of a more distinct voice emerging as she matures and i really hope that she keeps channeling that uh if at any point i was sat up really listening and thinking yes this Mm. is interesting this is making me think that was it in that piece do you think if you could understand the texts more directly that you would be able to see how they might be, her setting of them might be speaking to us today. Yes, I would agree with that. And because I've been sent the album in MP3s and I don't have liner notes, which are normally incredibly detailed from DG, mm. it's a little bit harder for me to get into that frame of mind and to react to the text and see how she's taken it, it forward into music. And, and I, yeah, I would say that if I had access to that, perhaps I would feel a little bit differently. But just from listening to MP3s, I heartily recommend this disc for both the quality of its content and its execution. And I'm really pleased to have come across this composer. And I'm equally thrilled that DG have given her this opportunity. And I cannot wait to hear where she goes from now. I'd say that if she hasn't quite yet proven that she is one of those greats that I listed earlier, she certainly has it within her to do so in the future. you got to pick a pocket or two. John Williams' 1977 score to the film Star Wars. Eric Korngold's score to King's Row, written in 1942. Got to pick a Sam, talk to me about this concert you went to last night. I've been to see Jolts and Pulses 
a night celebrating the music of Tansy Davis, performed by ten players of the London Sinfonietta as part of King's Place's Venus Unwrapped series. Okay, what's the story with Tansy Davis? Davis is one of the British contemporary classical world's established stars, I'd say. She's been writing at the very highest level since her piece Neon brought her to international attention in 2005. She's also a very positive ambassador for contemporary music, comfortable on stage, talking like a normal human being, uh, referencing George Michael as a musical influence and bringing one of the best haircuts in all of classical music to the stage. Think Roberto Firmino. Mm, So well worth celebrating then. Yes, in quite an oddly structured concert, it has to be said. It was a bit like Wicked, which I also saw this week, in that the the peak was the middle of the concert. Her new commission, The Rule is Love, which was sung... So if you care to find me... They did sound subtly different. Okay, right. Uh, The Rule is Love was sung by Elaine Michener, and it was the last act, much like Defying Gravity, before halftime. It felt quite strange to put that piece that was the focus of so much of the energy of the advertising and of the programme note and of the pre-concert chatter Mm. in the middle rather than at the end. However, overall, it was very pleasing to the self-selecting kind of audience you're going to get at a contemporary music night in King's Place Hall. One isn't massive, and it wasn't totally full, but everyone there had tote bags and carefully sculpted Scandinavian beards to suggest they were all connoisseurs. So Mm -hmm. I think the people who wanted to be there were there. It wasn't the kind of night to be introducing new fans or being accessible. It was more shaped as a pinnacle of excellence, a treat for Tansy Davis fans. Okay, and what did you make of her music? Overall, really good fun. The eight pieces fell into three categories. Earlier pieces from the first ten years of the 20th century, when she was really getting herself going, the new commission, uh, as well as one other piece that had been revised recently, that boiled down her large operatic works that she's been handling in the last four or five years into something that could fit into a small concert hall. And there were also two pieces by other composers that she's inspired by, Naomi Pinnock and Clara Iannotta. Compositionally, the features that seem to be common threads across Davies's work are the blending of electronic soundscapes and synthesizers with contemporary language coloured by folk and funk influences, particularly that funk offbeat 16th, the sort of mm-hmm. kind of feeling. It was all over the place, not just in the bass where we might find it in funk, but in, in all registers of the orchestra. Richard Baker was using some very compact conducting to keep everything tight, and it really did run very smoothly on the night. I found myself listening in her music much more to rhythmic patterns Mm. and what was going on in the texture rather than necessarily the pitch class. You're not coming away from it singing tunes then? Well, maybe some motifs, Yeah, but the changes in the harmony weren't the milestones. So which of the pieces stood out for you? The three hits for me were Loopholes and Lynchpins, a piano piece played stunningly by Elizabeth Burley, then Naomi Pinnock's piece, Everything Does Change, and one that also stood out was Ianotta's ID La del Bianco. Lynchpins was the earliest piece in the concert, written for solo piano and built using rhythmic cycles to reinterpret some Scarlatti sonatas. It was fascinating to watch and very lively, and again, an effective juxtaposition, this time of long held harmonies and very percussive, punchy, funk piano notes. There was one movement that sounded a bit like me trying to play The Simpsons in Mittens, uh, which was a little bit disappointing, but the rest of it was a real delight. And I've got to say that Elizabeth Burley is just so worth watching play the piano. She has great touch, especially if you consider that she was playing synthesizers for quite a lot of the concert, and then suddenly to go and play a 10-minute solo work on the piano 
just that shift alone, I thought, she's a real, real star. And the rhythmic elements are just so in her bones and she's dancing through it. It feels a little bit silly to mention this, but the London Sinfonietta do look a little bit like a sort of friendly lawn bowls team. Okay. They're, they're just sweet, slightly older players of maybe our parents' generation. Whatever it is, they're not trendy in their appearance. Like the people that you described in the audience, perhaps. Yeah, they, they look a little bit different from many of their audience who are there with a very curated personal brand. But these guys who look like they might sell you a rock cake are actually at the cutting edge of this music and play it in such a stylish way they sound so cool mm. and it's just a lesson in not being misled by music advertising i suppose on a different note the pinnock was so captivating to this audience and made everyone listen in a different way it was the one moment i felt the whole i was aware of the whole audience it was just for three players violin cello and clarinet and they played one or two chords across four minutes it's mostly silence they just reordered who starts the chord and what note they're playing within it. And that was all it was. It was entirely beautiful and made everybody just calm down in this quite frenetic concert. And what about the Ionotta? <laughs> well, I did think that this piece was touching on taking the piss, really. It sounded like the Clangers had been recast in a remake of Psycho. You had lots of whoop, whoop. And then suddenly, stabbing chords, as well as vocalisation from all of the players, and a bass clarinet trying to play a note that was obviously way too high for it. Mm. It was delivered without the humour that I think it needs, and then it looked like it was taking itself a little bit too seriously, and then it's that's when it starts to turn into an Armando Iannucci sketch. Yeah. Right? I, but overall, worth heading out in the rain for this gig? Definitely. And if you're into that kind of noisy, scrubby wonderfully physical sound of contemporary music, there are few better combinations than Tansy Davis, London Sinfonietta and King's Place. Composer Fact File, Tansy Davis. Born Bristol, 1973. Grew up playing the horn, guitar and singing. She turned to composition after consulting a psychic. Studied composition with Alan Bullard at the Colchester Institute. Then Guildhall and Royal Holloway. She briefly lived in a caravan. Several of her pieces were inspired by architecture. Her two operas are Between Worlds and Cave, which has texts by contemporary poet Nick Drake. She composes assisted by her cat and inspired by listening to birds. She once said, Nature is the big teacher for me. Now, some of you may have noticed that we are just over a month away from Christmas, which in the classical world tends to mean partaking in either Handel's Messiah, Bach's Christmas Oratorio, or a screening of Love Actually with a live orchestra. Well, I'm pleased to say that this year your options have increased. Over the next month, you can catch screenings of Yorgos Lanthimos's The Lobster, complete with a live performance of the soundtrack, courtesy of the Solemn Quartet, two of whom, Steph Tress and Will Newell, join me today. Steph, 
what was it that made you choose the lobster or you as a quartet choose the lobster? Well, the short answer is the soundtrack comprises almost entirely string quartets. So it's just an obvious choice. Practical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, they're, they're largely quartets that we have already played. It's also just an incredible film. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of orchestras have been doing live score screenings in the last few years, and it's obviously become quite popular. And after we saw this film, we just thought it was somehow a project waiting to happen. I've never come across a, a string quartet doing a live screening before. I don't... I, we haven't either. I th- so I think you guys might be the, f- the first ever. Which is exciting, right? I guess it's like the first ever for our generation. But like as we've been putting this together, we've been thinking about what cinema was like maybe like 100 years ago mm. when there may well have been a string quartet or at least a pianist yeah, at course. the front of the auditorium. With an out-of-tune piano. Exactly. But it sort of like makes it a bit more of a performance activity. Yeah. So it's not just the viewer activity that we think of it being now, maybe. So what are the pieces that come up in the film? Because I'm not sure about them, actually. So... It's it's an amazing soundtrack, and as Steph was saying, it features lots of the string quartet repertoire, which we're sort of used to playing. The main two recurring ideas in the film are from Beethoven's Opus 18 Number no. 1. It's the slow movement of that, which has got this like amazingly tender, sort of drawn-out melody, and that's used yeah throughout the film. I won't give away too much for people that yeah. haven't seen it. And then also you have um, Shostakovich's Eighth Quartet, um, the fourth movement, which is the the sort of knock at the door theme, like aggressive music. And then various moments throughout the film, we have Stravinsky three pieces. It's the number three from that. There's a bit from Britain's first quartet, an amazing bit of Schnitker from the beginning of the quartet number two. And then we've also got the Schnitker piano quintet in there. And we're playing with the amazing pianist Pavel Timofeyevsky. And we're also playing with him a piece that he transcribed from the film. It's an amazing Greek song, but from, I think, the 60s, called Appamessa, and it's just an amazing version for piano and cello slash viola. So we've got like quite a range of music, but yeah, it's, it's a all... Huge range. The cues, the excerpts are quite small, so there's a lot of recurring music, which is interesting and, and sort of adds, adds to the film, I think. The only one Will's forgotten to mention is Don Quixote, um, which he's managed to arrange for... Piano quintet. It's been fun. It's the bit from Don Quixote, if people know it, it's the the bit where all the winds sound like sheep. So it's been fun just putting that into the viola part, obviously. (laughs) I'm going to look out for it now. So you've done a performance of this already. How did you find organising everything and the performance compared to playing at, say, Wigmore Hall? Well, in terms of organising it, it's just been... There's been a lot of work put into it. It's Mm. been in the making for probably over a year now. From the first moment that one of us made a phone call to Element Pictures in Ireland and said, hello, we're a classical string quartet. And, you know, we have this idea and we gradually got the process further. We had the sound file made of of the film without the soundtrack in it. And then we've been rehearsing it and more latterly trying to get people to come so yeah it's and it's actually been really interesting for us going through that whole process Mm. when it comes to actually performing it I think actually what we found interesting the other day in the first run through is that there's this big build-up and we were rehearsing and we were sound checking quite a lot of the day there's various technical hiccups that we had to sort out and then the event starts and between cues 
there's actually quite a lot of times when we're just sitting and kind of just actually enjoying the film, which is quite, quite unusual compared to our normal not to concert. get distracted. Yeah. Mr. <laughs> Q. Do you think, having been through that process and you say it's taken a quite, quite long time and it's been quite a big commitment, say, is it something that you're still keen to keep doing into the future? Do you think you'd want to try and maybe do another Yorgos film? Maybe, I don't know, The Favourite, which has got a great soundtrack as well. It has an amazing soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, there's something that we are definitely keen on investigating and, like, trying to look at what would work. Obviously, like, as Steph was saying, this film is ideally suited on a practical level because it's all just ready to go. I guess the other thing to say on that is that we are more broadly interested in, like, how we can appeal to a wider audience, to use that overused phrase. Mm. And I think, you know, taking classical music into a cinema or into other venues is, is obviously one way of, of doing that. And hopefully people that come to watch The Lobster might think, you know, oh, it's quite good watching a string quartet live, actually. Maybe I'll go to a concert. Yeah. So we, we're just hoping to, like, um, spread the net a little bit and, and see, what, see what comes back. So we did a concert, well, we did a, a run of concerts back in May where we played contemporary music featuring electronics and we also played Bartok in that quartet and, and we did it at the Bussy Building, we did it at Soup Kitchen in Manchester and Casimir Gardens in Liverpool. So we were just, that, that was sort of in the same series of events um, that we've called Solem Lates. So with those events, I guess we are just interested in, in, in appealing to, to more, as many people as possible. So what are the dates that we should be looking out for in the next month? So the next gig we have is on the 13th of November at Notting Hill Gate. We're then at Pitch House Central, which is in Piccadilly, on Sunday the 24th. We're at the Brixton Ritzy on the 5th of December. Hackney Pitch House on the 6th of December. West Norwood on the 11th of December. We're going to Brighton, Duke of York's, on the 12th of December. And then we finish in Crouch End Picture House on the 18th of December, which is the day before my birthday. Oh, yeah. real treat. <laughs> well, brilliant. Well, I'm really looking forward to the Brixton one, which is just down the road from me. Perfect. Good luck with all of it, and I'm sure it'll be fantastic. What's coming up in the next fortnight? Well, assuming we all know when the Sri Lankan National Tree Planting Day is, the 15th, that's the start of the Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival, which will feature over 50 new music events being held in various venues across the city. We particularly recommend looking out for Seth Parker playing the ice cello. Cello made of ice mm. on the 16th and new music firebrands The Hermes Experiment on the 18th they're very good we also got Morton Feldman's little known music for film and dance also on the 18th and Nadia Ratsimandresi playing her Ond Martino on the 20th on Sunday the 17th the Royal Opera House are branching out hosting Royal Opera House Late its own sort of club night it's got a mix of music dance, opera and ballet all with some champagne to go along. Mm. On Monday the 18th, it's the 159th birthday of Polish composer and former Prime Minister Ignacy Jan Paderewski, who is well worth reading about. He's a fascinating character. Mm. Wednesday the 20th, Meredith Monk's 77th birthday. Happy birthday, Meredith. Southwark Cathedral will be hosting an event with Faber and Faber, who are celebrating their 90th birthday with readings of pieces by T.S. Eliot, interspersed by works by Benjamin Britten, performed by the Southbank Symphonia. 
you can actually buy a roaming ticket for £20, which, if you're lucky, will get you a cushion. Do you sort of wander around the building? Yeah, one I of think those. so. Oh, one of them. Very cool. On Wednesday the 20th, at the Old Church in Old Stokey, accordionist Bartosz Glowacki will be giving a recital of works by Sofia Gubadelina, Astor Piazzolla, Arvo Pert and Bach. Awesome. Thursday the 21st is the anniversary of Purcell's death from pneumonia after his wife locked him out for being drunk. Yeah, which it's is, a good story. It's a good one. story. From the 21st to the 30th of November in Nottingham, Liverpool, Manchester, London, Leeds and Salford, the new music group, the Manchester Collective, will be touring a mashup of Ligeti's Metamorphose and Nocturnes and Vivaldi's Four Seasons, plus a new work by British composer Edmund Finnis called The Centre is Everywhere. Well, it is if you're going to Nottingham, Liverpool, Manchester, London, Leeds and Salford. Friday yeah. the 22nd, Usher Hall in Edinburgh plays host to Royal Scottish National Opera playing Tchaikovsky 6. Hit. Mozart Piano Concerto number 27. Hit. It's also Benjamin Britten's 106th birthday. Happy birthday, Benjamin. One he shares with several musical prodigies, including Spanish composer Joaquin Rodrigo, Canadian organist and conductor Sarah MacDonald, father of the English folk song revival Cecil Sharp, and the excellent pianist Stephen Huff. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. First up, big happy birthday to Alice Poppleton, 26 today. Baroque violinist at large and all round good egg. Also, a thank you to London Oriana Choir for letting us use that clip of the Kerry Andrews piece. Mm, that was magical. Also, thanks to Elizabeth and Rachel from Decca Records and indeed to DG Records for sorting out that album. 